It's time for Cofield and Company. Live from NBA Summer League. Summer League. On ESPN Las Vegas. All right, back out here at the Summer League. It is Cofield and Company. Mateo alongside John Von Tobel is here working with VSIN and nice enough to uh, help us out doing Cofield and Company in the next couple of days. Is we got a lot lined up. Some NBA insiders will be joining us a little later in the show. We'll talk uh, some UNLV football, actually, in about 15, 20 minutes as we'll bring in tight ends coach from UNLV football program, Nate Longshore, who I don't know if you've been around Nate at practice or at the games, but uh, Nate is, I would guess, 280, 6'5", 280. Um, former quarterback at Cal and not a fat ass. Now, just he's just he was always a big guy. But we got a lot to get into because we've broken down wide receivers and running backs. And now we're going to get to the tight ends and also talk about the edges of the line where I think Tiger Shanks is very much in the lead for one of the tackle spots. But the other tackles, it's going to be a very, I think, open competition. But we'll get an update from him. And season starts in less than 55 days. So it's coming. And keep in mind, UNLV football uh, turned over the roster to the tune of 40-plus new players. A lot of them have been in, but a lot of them, like 30-plus just came in about three weeks ago, and when they get going later this month into early August, you got to get everyone ready. And everyone's not going to be up to speed game one, but you got to get guys as ready as possible basically in like five weeks, and then it's game time. you got Bryant on September 2nd, and then you go to Michigan. Right. I would – I'd be – I like to work. I know you do too. I, I don't like to miss days of work because then I feel like I fell behind. Can you imagine being a football program where you're like, hey, we wanted to turn over the roster, we wanted more talent, we wanted it to match our systems on both sides of the ball more, but then you know you look up in late July and you're like, "Holy crap, we got to get everyone ready like this quick." <laughs> got to turn this thing around quick. You got to get going. And like you said, there's also the passion. Like uh, when I took vacation the last month, by the fourth day, I was already like writing and doing stuff. So I was like, "I can't do this for that long." Like you got to keep going. You feel like you've just been. And when your program not only is reflipping, like flipping everything, but a pro, you're taking over a program with the history that UNLV has. Like, you want to be the group that turns this thing around for the long haul. Of course you're chopping at the bit to get back to it. John Von Tobel, Cofield, on the concourse of the Thomas and Mac. We're by uh, Suite 29 by the Strip View Pavilion. So we've had a bunch of listeners stop by, say hi, show they listen to the show. It's usually the goofy stuff. I told a ridiculous story the other day about a uh, horrific loss playing pool basketball. Uh, I got beat at horse by uh, younger people, and I was I was livid and and some guy comes up the next day. He's like, man, I like your show. He's like, you guys do a lot of different stuff. He's like, that pool story was pretty good. I'm like, that was terrible. I I, I, I admitted to him. I was like, that was awful. My, like, no, I loved it. My main job is at a sports betting network. Uh, I got great feedback on the story I just told the other day about passing out drunk underneath a pool table at a party at somebody's house I didn't know and using a uh, oven mitt as a pillow. Oh, nice. It's great. Who are you picking for the last game tonight? <laughs> you don't get that one. No, who cares? <laughs> you don't. It's hilarious. It really is. So, uh, yesterday... The ESPYs went down. They scheduled it for what is called the slowest day in sports where there's no games. There was WNBA games. So we saw a lot of the big sports personalities, a lot of uh, Hollywood folks who love sports. They were there as well. I think it's 25 years exact since Norm MacDonald did his just rip job on the entire sports community at the ESPYs. Rest in peace. Pat McAfee was up on stage... I thought this was a lot to freaking bite off for McAfee, but, man, he has – I mean, we know he makes a ton of money. Um, I'm really hoping that he's going to infuse a lot of energy to ESPN Radio National because that's going to help us. 
But he got up yesterday, and what what was he doing? Well, he had a great bit where he talked about DeMar Hamlin, and we go back to, of course, the bit wasn't about DeMar Hamlin, by the way, uh, but going back to <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. the reaction to DeMar Hamlin and how many people were very upset with certain media personalities about the conversations on social media when it came to Hamlin and the incident on the field. Fire this. This year, obviously, we saw one of the most inspirational things that has ever happened in human history. Ladies and gentlemen, DeMar Hamlin is here tonight. Hell yeah. We all watched the situation unfolding on Monday Night Football as Joe Buck and Troy Aikman were trying to navigate the waters and we all at home feared for the absolute worst. And Skip Bayless was like, get that dead body off the field. We got playoff implications on the line. He said it. The tweet's still up. Hashtag delete the tweet, Skip. Come on. How many people in the audience you actually think were aware of what Skip had tweeted and that it was still up and what he was even referencing? That was very much, uh, as we you know, use the term inside baseball, that was very much inside stuff on media. It was. And I got to say, the other thing that stuck out to me, the line that he uses, get that dead body off the field. Right. Like, I mean, he's alive. Yes. Like, so you can't I, use it if he, I mean, if he was like, you know, in serious trouble since. Yeah, like, I, and I think there were a lot of people who heard that and kind of, you heard, like, the first reaction wasn't really laughing. It was just like, oh, okay. And like you said, I don't think there were that many people that really, when you're in the Twitter sphere, it seems like it's front and center. It's not that many people who are following that much. So did that bring back memories for you of uh, arguing on this show about what Skip had tweeted? Kind of. I figured that you would hear that and be like, he had a point! You know what, I, <laughs> it's funny, you sent that over. And I completely, I mean, I kind of remember what I had argued. Um, and I think maybe Adam Hill had argued it as well, that the tweet was misunderstood. It was poorly crafted. Yeah, and my argument going back to it, too, was, I, like, even if it was misconstrued, it's Skip's fault because of the character that he plays, right? Like, even if, if, if he has a point, the, the persona that you have put forward, right. there's a reason why people misconstrue it. It's your own fault. Yeah, no one's going to buy it as some nuanced thing Correct. or really read it. They're just going to get outraged, because the, especially because the beginning of it, did seem outrageous. Right. But then the more you read it, he was making a point that at this point the playoffs are kind of meaningless when there's a guy on the field fighting for his life. Correct. So we're all good on that? Yeah, we, well, we are. Can I also <laughs> – look, I'm not the I'm not the most in-shape guy. I feel like Pat McAfee wears outfits that he thinks he's in a lot better shape than he really is. Wow, where's this coming from? I've never heard this one. Well, and look, maybe it's like a rich person thing because, like, I don't understand, like, some of the outfits. But, like, the pants were super tight and kind of short. They're like capris. And the jacket, you could tell, like, if he was going to try to button that thing, it was not going to button. And the sleeves were super tight, too. Like, they went up to, like, here. I don't know if that's a I, fashion thing or what. I but. think it is. All right, maybe. So you, uh, you actually paid attention to this thing a little bit. You guys both sent over, does anyone watch the ESPYs? No, I, and I didn't mean that as a slight. I was yeah. legitimately wondering. I've yeah. actually never sat down and watched the ESPYs before. Uh, I know that when there were certain things that came to fruition with the Arthur Ashe Award of Courage, all of a sudden everybody was watching the ESPYs right. and had an opinion on it. But I've never been there and gone, oh, today's the ESPYs. I want to check that out. Like, I've never actually done it. The only most I've actually watched is the monologue from Norm. That's about it. Yeah. Um, Damon, yesterday we put our TV sports viewing to the test, and Candy admitted that the All-Star game, he had watched eight innings. Uh, Damon watched, I think, a couple innings at the end. I didn't watch one second of it. Nope. Uh, but I was ready to talk about it because of... Social media. 
So the points I needed were on social media. I think this is, I think the SVs are something you view maybe not even when it's first put on, but you watch it over time. And then it's the clips that get watched. Damon, did you watch any of the ESPYs? Not at all. The most coverage I had was from LeBron James' Instagram. Family looked nice. Right? I mean, that's how we, we bring this up every day. That's, that is how a lot of people now consume sports. They just simply don't have the time to sit down and watch a two- or three-hour block. And I'll tell you this. You know what the ESPYs are. The ESPYs are exactly what we're sitting at right now. The NBA Summer League, the more I have covered it, yeah. is not about basketball. It's about NBA media members and NBA players and NBA executives getting together in a single city to all talk to one another about certain things. Basketball just happens to happen, right, while this all goes on. Same thing with the ESPYs. It's all of the media elite and sports personalities gathering together in a single area, having a party afterwards, but before there just happens to be an award show. Right. It's a celebration mid-year sports. Right. There's nothing wrong with that. No. I don't know why people hate on it. Like, no. I didn't watch it, so it must suck. Like, then don't watch it. No oh. big deal. Yeah, and that, that wasn't where my question was. I was just genuinely curious, like, is there anybody out there that looks forward to watching the ESPYs? Because it's never caught with me. I look forward to catching a lot of the clips. That's yeah. what I look forward to. Yeah, I, I like to see people, like, you know, cutting their teeth as mon- like with the monologue with McAfee to see if people are actually funny. If there's any social media clips that will get it. You know, Drake that year is actually pretty solid. But, like, I, like if you ask me... Who won an ESPY? I, I could not tell you. I have no idea. Yeah. I don't even know what the awards are. You yeah. mentioned the Arthur Ashe. I was like, oh, yeah, there's yeah. that award. So I'll probably wiki it and then maybe backtrack and go watch it. So lots of NBA talk today. Coming up, we'll get into the rumors around uh, James Harden to your L.A. Clippers. But right around the corner, some uh, college football with uh, UNLV tight end coach Nate Longshore. Now, back to Cofield and Company. Live at the Thomas and Mack, Thomas and Mack. on ESPN Las Vegas. Big show on the way today at the TNM Summer League. Next couple of days is uh, John Von Tobel, part of the company, part of Vsin, will be alongside. Man, you and I were just talking during the break about Netflix and this quarterback docu series, and I'm not going to watch the whole thing at one time. We'll get into that later on. But I, I'm telling, I forget. I like a lot of sports. Like I'm really, I probably like college basketball the most of anything, but. I love college football. I love the NFL. And I forget how much I love all the nuance and all the stuff on the field and behind the scenes and all the studying and the execution. And when I watched that first episode of Netflix quarterback with Pat Mahomes and Kirk Cousins and Mariota, it, like, I started getting fired up, man. I, I love football. I love football. See, I love the, everything that goes into it. And we have a chance here to further talk about UNLV football. We've been doing a spot every week to get you ready for the season, and then we'll have all these uh, coaches on with uh, audio during the month of August, getting ready for the opener on September 2nd. Nate Longshore is the tight ends coach for the Rebels. What's up, Coach? How are you? It's Steve and John. How's it going, fellas? Uh, we're fired up. We were watching, uh, as I mentioned, the documentary that they, they put together last year, and now they're airing it on uh, Netflix. I don't know if you heard about it, but uh, I don't know. What gets your juices flowing? You know, the, the, the pressure of the season coming up. Um, I assume you, you get a little time off here while you're around the facility, and then it's going to be ramped up here in a couple weeks. Yeah, it's just the, the housekeeping and getting organized, trying to be ready for uh, kind of the push. As you as you go into fall camp, you're trying to take into account everything uh, that could happen so you can you can be ready to make some adjustments. When do coaches have free time? I think you have a little more free time right now. I know you're the you know you're there uh, paying attention to what's going on at the FFC, but like for you, when do you actually really have free time to get anything done? So this this is really this is really it. So the First three weeks in July, um, thank goodness, recruiting is a dead period on recruiting, so there's no pop-up visits into the facility. 
Um, the guys are just kind of wrapping up their summer workouts and um, taking family on vacation. And, you know, when it's over, I'll see you at Christmas. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. I, uh, I often think of the coaches when I fall behind on stuff, and I'm like, man, they don't have any time. Why can't I manage my time? I'll give you a good example. I need wipers, as everyone does, windshield wipers in Vegas because they rot in like three months. I bought the wipers like four months ago, and they're just sitting in my car, and I never changed them. Uh, I'm, not asking, I'm not asking you to change my wipers, but can, like, can you do stuff like that, or is that something you have to farm out because you're so busy? You're like, someone please change my wipers. Oh, the the minutia, the nuance, the sprinkler guy, all of that coordinating is <laughs> is a uh, you're moving you're moving mountains to try to get the littlest tasks done. So uh, I feel you on that one. Yeah, it's like uh, like the quarterback documentary that Steve's referring to, Coach. Like uh, Kirk Cousins, at one point he tells the audience, he's like, "Yeah, I'm so focused on football, my wife picks up my outfits. I can't even do that." Yeah, I, I think uh, that reminds me of, like Steve Jobs when he just went to that one <laughs> outfit because. I don't have time to waste time making decisions on what to wear, you know? I get my uh, done. That's definitely I, a, real, a real problem. I generally wear a black golf shirt every day because at the last minute I'm getting dressed and I'm like, ah, the, the, the black shirt, that's, uh, we're going to go with that. Did you go on vacation or is it coming up? No, we got away. We, got, uh, we went to Yellowstone for a little bit, um, spent some time out there. I'm not much of a, a snowbird, so I go up there uh, when the sun shines and it's nice. So what is Yellowstone like now? Because I've read it, like it's blown up in terms of the people there. Like, can you still enjoy it? I mean, does it, or does it feel like it's overrun, or it's still very natural? Oh no, it's very much an amusement amusement park at this really? point. I mean, there's there's people everywhere. Um, it's uh, it's quite a zoo, no doubt. It's weird too. You see videos of people walking up to wild animals, you know, big wild animals, you know. It's, it's strange. You're you're a big guy. I assume you're not going to walk up to a uh, buffalo and start poking at it. Uh, yeah, no, I I don't know. You know, I'm, even my dog likes his space. So I, I I see those people too, and I'm not quite sure how they think it's going to go. Uh, it goes poorly generally. Uh, Nate Longshore is with us, yep. tight end coach from uh, UNLV. You know, I I didn't get a chance to ask you in the spring, and it's kind of a, a strange delivery on this, but you're one of the holdover coaches, so. What's that process like? Uh, you know, they decide to move in a different direction from Marcus Arroyo. I'm sure at that point you're like, well, I'm screwed. Or you know, are you contacted almost immediately? Like, hey, Nate, you know, we'd like to keep you around. Do you have to go through a whole interview process? Does, does Odom call you? How does it work? No, there's, there's definitely uh, some limbo there. You're not quite sure. Um, you, you've obviously, you're putting out calls and trying to see uh, what all your options are at the same time. You know, you've got your wife in family and friends and they like what they've got going on and she's got her work too and it's it's a it's an elaborate kind of delicate dance and you know i had known coach odom um we have a few few mutual friends and they all spoke very highly of them so i, I kind of made an effort to you know if i, if I had the opportunity i, I want to be retained and i want to stick around and try to see this thing through so the opportunity arose and uh, i was excited and, and thrilled to be a part of it so you see the potential in this program. I'm sure you you know you guys built something with the last regime. Uh, I'm sure you're excited to kind of take the next couple of steps. Last year, you guys were very close in a five and seven season to winning you know six, seven, or eight. And, and honestly, we you know we did our little piece, uh, but I, I think it's kind of a collective effort of of a lot of people, a lot of years, a lot of staff. I mean this this program has been it, it, it's not easy. 
you know, building a program. And so I, I, I'm grateful for the guys that came even before us. I mean, they're the fruits of their labor. We reap some of those benefits. And now the current staff that I'm on is, is doing the same. So everyone's kind of played a part. And I, I hope at some point, you know, this thing obviously turns and, and gets over that hump. And I think everyone that was prior to can, can have a little pride in knowing that, that their piece helped, helped accomplish the mission. So you expressed, you know, the desire to stick around from your position now too. When then you're like, okay, I'm here, I'm sticking around. Did you were you familiar with the offensive system that you're going to be coaching in here? What is that transition like for you? Do you immediately start studying up on it? What was it like learning what you're going to start doing now from an offensive perspective? I mean, honestly, across college football, very much everybody's kind of doing the same thing. Yeah. You know, you're trying to exploit matchups, create leverage, find some numbers somewhere. Um, it's, it's, you do this as many hours as we do as coaches. And it's, it's all the same stuff. You're trying to get somebody open and score a touchdown. You know? Um, you know, sometimes we take it for granted trying to tell the kids that it's all the same stuff. It's not quite the same to them. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, the, the nuance and understanding kind of, you know, what we're trying to do is, you know, that's how you see these quarterbacks, you know, get picked up on a Wednesday and they can start on Sunday. It's a lot of a lot of similar stuff going on. So for the guys, for the tight ends in the go-go offense, what's the hardest thing to learn or adjust to that might be different from what they've played in? Is it you know running routes? Is it pass blocking? Is it run blocking? Um, I would I would say just the verticality within the within the passing game. I mean, a lot of times we were utilized in the passing game prior um, as you know a, a component of protection or. Um, you know, an outlet, and now being able to kind of run and open up the field and, and be a vertical threat, uh, that's, that's definitely an adjustment, but a, a welcome one. Am I wrong in thinking that tight end is like a somewhat unforgiving position? Like, you have to, you know, you're going to be involved in run blocking, you're going to be involved in pass blocking sometimes, you have to run routes and maybe never get a target for like 30 consecutive <laughs> routes. It seems like a somewhat unforgiving position at times. It's, uh, we, we have this graphic, and it's, we're the Swiss Army knife. Yeah. You know, we've a little bit of everything. I mean, you even see Kelsey throwing the ball on plays now. You're running it, you're throwing it, you're catching it, you're blocking. You got to know the run game. You got to know the pass game. It's a little bit of everything, and most likely, 60 plays of the game, you're not going to touch it. So, um, it's it's a selfless position, but definitely a complicated one, having to uh, you know be involved in all phases. Nate Longshore is on Cofield and Company, ESPN Las Vegas, the opener for the Rebels, September 2nd at Allegiant Stadium, UNLVTickets.com, which is where you grab your tickets for that first game against Bryant. Very aggressive home schedule with uh, Vandy coming into town uh, a couple of weeks after that one. Uh, let's talk about some of the tight ends. Um, what's the next step, uh, and can he get there for Shelton Zeon? Yeah, I think uh, the, the progress that he's made since I've been here going into – you know, year four now and seeing the progression of his career and, and his development, uh, he really took ownership and, and being a point of attack blocker last year and, and was one of the better blocking tight ends in the conference. I think now with, with adding some elements to the passing game, being able to incorporate his speed and athleticism into the passing game and get him as a downfield threat, uh, should round out his, his, NFL prospect, uh, you know, uh, bio. 
Uh, fans should be encouraged by at least what, what I saw at spring practice, and that was that Charlie Williams, one of your newcomers, and Christian Earls, they were both out there a lot. They were getting a lot of action. Um, I assume they're different type guys, but am I typecasting by the size because Earls is you know six eight and two fifty five? Do they have a similar skill set, or are they different? Um, I would say those guys are different. I think we've got Kaleo uh, Balunge, who is similar to Earls. They're both six seven, six eight basketball guys with range and elite ball skills, um, kind of mismatched type of guys. Um, Shelton Zion's your traditional wide balance. He can help you in the run game, the pass game, um, a little bit of everything. Charlie Williams is a big, he's a big receiver. I mean, he was uh, one of those taller receivers that kept working out in the weight room and became a a tight end. So his his route skills and his ability to separate uh, as a receiver kind of put him in a different class of his own in my room. Um, he's still got a ways to go. He's young, but is uh, having that extra six months as a high schooler, getting here early to to get ready for the season. I definitely see him contributing this fall. So we also we all know about like the basketball backgrounds, right? When it comes to tight ends, when you're out and about and like scouting some players, are you swinging by basketball gyms every once in a while? Just like sticking your head no, in, you, like, yeah, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. Those ball skills and. Uh, you know, body control, all that stuff is invaluable as far as tight ends. So. Nate Longshore is with us, the uh, tight ends coach with UNLV. So I wanted to ask you, I know, you know, technically it's not the group that you're working with, but you guys all work together. I mean, the tight end is part of the offensive line unit. I find the offensive line this year fascinating because there's a lot of new parts. You know, Tiger Shanks is one of the guys that's a holdover, and I'm sure he's going to challenge hard for one of those tackle spots. Um, how much competition is there going to be at tackle? It, you know, it was interesting to see Marcus Miller out there playing a lot of left tackle. I saw him, I think I think it was Phil Steele who had him, like four-team all-conference at tackle. The, the tackle competition, once you guys really get going over those five weeks, is going to be pretty intense. Yeah, and that's kind of, you know, that's the beauty of a, of a new staff. You know, if you're a guy and you feel like, you know, you've been overlooked, and you bring a new staff in. Maybe you get some renewed energy and motivation, and and it kind of opens up the opportunities for everybody to kind of showcase and and kind of recommit to the process. Um, but I think in, at the end of the day, you're going to end up with a with a better product. Just them all competing, pushing each other. Uh, I, I look for that group to kind of be the the cornerstone of the offense, and and we'll go as they go. Sure. So, Nate, building on what John was saying about you know scouting basketball games, um, we can't mention you can't uh, the guys that you got verbally committed for 2024. But even when when you guys land, say a linebacker who's got either tight end sa- size or you know projects to be that kind of size, do you keep an eye on them? Obviously, position changes happen all the time. I'll, I will say this: the linebacking crew right now. I mean, it's incredibly deep, so there might be some, you know, uh, room for changes in the future. Do you keep an eye on the guys when they commit? Uh, and a lot of them are, you know, two-way players in high school anyway. Yeah, 100%. I mean, for us, the objective is to get the best 11 on the field. And sometimes that's on your own team on the other side of the ball. Uh, so, as you know, and the, the, the D-line coach is looking at O-line guys, and the O-line coach is looking at the D-line guys. And we're, uh, we're constantly uh, recruiting each other's guys uh, when we're in the meal room. 
Is there a game that you know you specifically are looking forward to this year? You know, maybe based on past results, or you've already started to look at matchups. A game that you're extra excited for, not only for the team but for the tight end group. Honestly, not. In, I mean, each of the individual games is is you know trivial as far as I I see the year of development. Uh, for me, I'm just excited to see these guys continue to. To grow and get better as a as a tight end unit, I think every game will be a, a great opportunity to, for them to to continue making strides and to showcase kind of the progress that they've made. Um, so, in that sense, I'm excited for for every game for them to have a chance to you know go put some some new film on tape. Coach, we appreciate a couple of minutes. Thanks for the long conversation, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks when you guys are uh, going live and uh, media can be around. We very much appreciate it. Absolutely, thank you guys, and all the best. There he is, Nate Longshore, big fella, working with the tight ends. And the tight end group has got an infusion of talent. Um, Christian Earls is 6'8 and 255. Um, we, you know, we were talking like Charlie Williams is small. He's 6'4, 240. Uh, Zeon has been kind of a, a quiet, steady contributor over the years. He's got plenty of upside. And, mm-hmm. you know, the coach just mentioned as he's such a good blocker that he's got some potential to play in the NFL. And it would be great to have that position kind of move, not to the forefront, but become a weapon where you get, whatever, 25, 30 receptions out of the position this year. Oh, 100%. And like we said, like it's somewhat unforgiving. So there's probably UNLV football fans that might even be familiar with some of the talent that's there. But with guys like Zion and the upside that they have, it would be cool to see them shine to let people know that that is a really talented group. Now back to Cofield and Company, live from NBA Summer League on ESPN Las Vegas. Heading towards a conversation with our one of our legal insiders, Xavier Pope, host of Suit Up News out of Chicago. That's coming up in less than 10 minutes. NBA Summer League rolling on. Goes all the way through Monday. Get through the 76 games. Title up for grabs. John Von Tobel's here. It's Cofield. Uh, some rumor mill stuff that seems to be picking up some momentum. Devon, you were saying you saw a story on uh, Harden picking up steam to the Clippers. Yeah, this is from Sam Amick. It says Harden is determined to be on the Clippers next season. And those are some strong words right there. I don't know how strong that is, but I do know that he doesn't want to be in Philadelphia. John? I mean, it sounds like he doesn't want to be in Philadelphia. <laughs> and I don't know, outside of the Clippers offering some salary filler and maybe a second-round pick or something like that, I don't know if Philly's going to get something back of, like, something that they want. Because Daryl Morey is definitely pushing for either a very good package for Harden or for Harden to stay. It's one of the two things. Is it the salary that creates so many problems, or is it his history where people are like, I mean, we'll pay pennies on the dollar, but we're not going to take this money off your hand and Harden and give you a ton back? No, it's 100% the salary. There's a reason yeah. why – or no, salary, excuse me. It's, it's 100% the history yeah. because the, the salary – there's a reason why he opted in for this year because it's less than $40 million. That makes you more tradable because you're making, I think it's like 36.5, something like that, maybe 37.5. Um, that makes you more tradable from a salary perspective. But we have an MO now, right? It's get traded somewhere, play for a year and a half, then ask for your way out. And teams don't want to trade assets for that. And especially the Clipper situation becomes even more unique because keep in mind that we're coming up on dates for both Kawhi Leonard and Paul George that they're going to be up for contract extensions. 
if you're the Clippers, you're not just rolling out four years because these guys haven't played for you in the postseason or consistently while they've been under contract. So the Clippers are also in this situation where, like, are we really going to give up, like, a good asset like a Terrence Mann for James Harden who could ask out in a year and a half and we're, you know, we're with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George? That, I think, complicates everything. So another qualifier in our Lotus Summer of Fun, eight trips in eight weeks, 364-1100, caller seven. Damon will hook you up as a qualifier to win four tickets to an Aviators game. But you're in for the weekly grand prize trip this week. It's a five-day houseboat rental on Lake Powell plus a $1,000 gift card and uh, for gas and food. Or you can just take the $3,000 cash straight up, take the trip, take the cash. It's the Lotus Summer of Fun. Caller 7, 364-1100. Call Damon now. Suit Up News, legal and cultural contributor Xavier Pope is live on Cofield and Company. Xavier, what's going on, buddy? Pretty good. How are you? We're good. Pretty good. How are you doing? Yeah, we're good. We're real good. We're out here at the Summer League, uh, so we want to get to a little hoopage in a bit. But, um, you know, I wanted to lean on you for uh, the beginning of our conversation on baseball. And I thought the LA Times had a really good story on. Oakland and the East Bay and the fact that the population of Oakland is uh, very, uh, very high in terms of an African-American population at 22% of the city. And the LA Times wrote a story like, how does Rob Manfred, the commissioner, talk about wanting to get more African-Americans to the major leagues? Right now it's a, a low of 6%, the lowest number it's been since 1955 when you're pulling a team out of a really prominent African-American market. Uh, Steve, uh, I think first and foremost, Oakland is becoming less of a, a black city um, based on how the property and things are moving in that city. Um, yeah. um, it, it's, it's an American issue that has to be addressed on multiple levels. Um, and and that, that's not so many politics around that. The second thing is, uh, I mean, we, this, is a, this is a commissioner who has seemed to disparage the city of Oakland and I think that the people of Oakland are, frankly, insulted um, by how Major League Baseball and Rob Manfred has treated their city. Um, but uh, the, the, the bottom line is this. We've been talking about this for several weeks here on the show, is that the money is where fans are They're going to cheer and support no matter where the money goes. Um, and that opens U.S. sport to be corrupted, to be commoditized. And as long as they continue to do this, you have... You know, it's the Supreme Court overturning student loans, but you have billionaires getting interest-free loans and bonds um, to make money off of, of cities and municipalities. Um, it's, 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 it's completely backwards in our society that billionaires, are, their profits are being buffered up even more while fans are losing their beloved team. And this is happening again to a city that's been traumatized by losing the Raiders twice, and now they're going to lose the Raiders, I mean, the Oakland A's, to the same place they lost the Raiders to. Um, I, I feel bad for that that city, um, but that's what happens when you're dealing with private sport. It's not a it's not a public. What, what would you, Xavier? What would you tell people who sit there and go like, "Oh, who cares? It's a sports." Like, what does it matter in terms of community outreach and, and getting minorities involved and, and growing the game? Like, they're just there to make money. But, you know, I got a, I got a press release from the NBA just now. Uh, they're actually opening a STEM lab and a mindfulness room at a local junior high out here tomorrow. Like, that's important for things in communities and to show a lack of interest in the one that you're already in. And, by the way, when they were coming out here, showed a lack of interest in putting in the original bill. Like, these things matter for communities where sports teams are going to be located. I, as someone who lives in Chicago, and all the all of, all of our professional sports teams are in the city, 
every area where there is a stadium, there is something that that stadium has done to that neighborhood to be able to keep a certain character, quality, uh, tourist ability of that neighborhood. You see, like Wrigleyville, that whole neighborhood was built around the Cubs. And how it's, 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 it's boomed into hotels and events. And so it has a significant economic impact in the community that they serve. But if you're focusing on pushing out certain fans with ticket prices and, and concession stands and, and PSLs and everything that else that comes along with, with big-time sports, then you're pushing out fans that are not necessarily able to afford the game, but then you're going to turn around and take their tax dollars and pay for stadiums. So it, sports has to change. Because we thought that we were going to go a different way in terms of sports teams funding their own stadiums, and that seems to have waned away because fans just frankly don't care. It, you know, keep the politics out of sports, but sports are uniquely political. And in yeah. making sure that teams pay with their words to be in a certain place, it should be part of that, and it's not happening. Um, it's very frustrating to see that happen to that, that town. I really feel bad for them. And, and on the other side of this, People are saying, like, come on, come on, come in. We'll pay you all the money you want. Um, and they're going to get it. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll make a correction there. It's not the people of Las Vegas. It's the public servants and politicians of Las Vegas in the state of Nevada, <laughs> which, again, it amazes me that uh, we were falling over each other, at least the politicians were, and the business people to bring in the A's and get into a relationship with Major League Baseball. Like, follow what they're doing in the previous market and the obnoxiousness. I mean, I, Rob Manfred, as compared to Ro- Roger Goodell, is a PR master, which is a joke. He's a robot. I mean, most people are like, what is with this guy? Manfred is just openly obnoxious about the whole freaking thing, and now he's just fibbing. I mean, saying repeatedly yeah. that Oakland never tried, there's not a plan, there's not an offer. The mayor of Oakland uh, flew up to Seattle to meet with Rob Manfred, and basically the message is like, hey, it's too late. But I- I'll tell you what the, what's really happening here, I believe is that John Fisher of the A's really has no money right now to put into the deal. And while the mm-hmm. A's deal is better from a public contribution standpoint, that A's deal will actually require John Fisher to put up his money now. The yep. Vegas deal, I don't believe he'll actually have to put up any money because he's going to get it from Nevada and Clark County and then yep. loans. And that's what this is about. And that's why Manfred can't say it. But he has, he basically, behind the scenes, he's like, this guy doesn't have enough money to get a stadium uh, done, so we've got to save his ass. Well, you have to understand this about, and you understand this very well, Steve, that remember the commissioners serve the interests of the owners of a particular sport. They, they are there to make sure owners make a lot of money so that the commissioner can turn around and make more money being the commissioner. Right. So Rob Manfred has a, has a conflict of interest as it relates to any particular city where any team would have any territorial rights uh, and so he is, he, he is their PR person. And clearly, Rob Manfred understands that he can openly not care about the citizens of Oakland and can disparage them and talk terrible about them because he's not going to pay the price for it because he's still doing the bidding of John Fisher. And on the other side of this, we talked about this several weeks ago, how the various public servants of, of Las Vegas questioning how the dollars are going to be spent, how her certain community is going to be affected. And then later on, reverse field is like, come on in. We'll yep. give you whatever you want. Yep. They got a couple of <laughs> couple of uh, requests filled, and they're like, okay, we're good to go. Like, okay, all right, I don't understand it. Um, 
Boy, I'm trying to understand what happened in Northwestern in your neck of the woods with Pat Fitzgerald. There, there's so much to the story in terms of the allegations of old school coaching and players misbehaving yeah. and bullying and racism. And then there's the legal end of it. Was Northwestern allowed to do this? I mean, make some sense of the story. What's the vibe in Chicago around Northwestern? Well, it's Northwestern is, is seen as the Ivy League of the Big Ten. And so a, a school like Northwestern, hey, this doesn't happen in our institution. Wrong. Um, where... There's a certain set group of guys, seniors, uh, you put into this group, you haze the younger players. Some of them, you know, some of it was explicitly sexual. Guys put on masks, going into locker rooms and dry humping the, the player. Uh, then you have a certain incident on the, when the race element comes into it, making African-American players eat watermelon off the field. And there, it was accounts that, uh, players were told that you're not in a hood anymore by, by, by Fitz. Then also uh, you, you have a gangster walk. Um, and so and it, this is, has been overlooked so, so many times. And then also passes, you know, clapping to, inst- to initiate someone into this group. And so the, the, the university responds. They, they agree to a two-week non-paid suspension. Two weeks, come on, what a joke. And then the blowback comes. They realize, oh, we, we can't just brush this under the rug and Fitz loses his gig, but guess what? You sign a contract for the two-week suspension, and now Northwest is big time on the hook because they didn't take their time to fully, and fully really vet and try to move past that, and now they're going to look even worse because this is a complete institutional problem beyond just the head coach that's been there for almost a couple decades. Can we talk about the weird week in journalism as Northwestern – the student newspaper is delivering this story. The New York Times is saying we're not going to cover sports anymore, and especially the business of sports. Yeah, I mean, you, you saw this earlier with the athletics of the business. I, I was the first person to cover the business of sports. Um, and so then they brought in a whole business staff, and then now they're getting rid of them because that coverage is coming over to the athletic. But some of the best business sports business uh, was coming from the athletic in terms of uh, concussions, in terms of some of the the name issues with the with the Washington uh, with the Washington team on fo- in football. And so this is some of the best reporting we've seen. And so will that continue with the athletic? Now the athletic has enormous coverage and they they continue to grow. But how in depth will it be? Will it will it really truly focus on some of the issues that matter that make sports move? Xavier Pope is up with Cofield and JVT here on this Thursday. We're live at the NBA Summer League, uh, getting into some of the uh, weird news of the week with Northwestern and some of their legal issues. John? Uh, Xavier, Xavier, I want to follow up on that really quickly. How much of this move to the athletic for the sports coverage has to do with the fact that the athletic isn't unionized? That's a great question. That's, that's, that's a great point because, you know, it's, it's not a big issue over the last couple of years were the unionization of New York Times uh, employees and writers. And so – um, that that could be a huge component of it in, in leverage against in, and we saw a lot of the turnover that's been happening in in media and this is an easy way to potentially underpay uh, staff uh, to trim staff to AI reporting <laughs> and so um, that's what people should be looking for in terms of how the staff how staff are being treated and how stories are going to be written particularly in in just spitting out robots. Uh, coverages of games. <laughs> Let's stick with technology. I saw you tweet out a story. I think it was uh, out of Boston 
And yeah. you can get into the story about how African-American patients were treated, but a, a note came up about doctors wearing body cams. So explain yeah. the story, and could that be the future that doctors would have body cams on? Yeah, this story was in the Boston Globe, uh, and it was written by a, a, a physician uh, who, psychologist, who saw some of the issues in the ER, the staff laughing over teens that had gunshot wounds that he think criminal, um, and some of the disparity, uh, disparity in terms of how African-American mothers were treated in delivery rooms, leading to some disparity in some of their health in that, that situation. Um, it's kind of gross. Uh, mm-hmm. And bringing up the context, well, African-American patients are disproportionately treated in terms of some of the outcomes. And, hey, maybe these outcomes would change if there was a body camera. That's pretty radical. Um, and there's so many different legal issues surrounding something like that. But inside the African community, the community, there's a reason why a lot of people don't go to the doctor or the ER because they are afraid that they'll go there and they will die. I mean, that's something that's not talked about in mainstream culture enough, but it's a pretty dirty little, dirty little secret in the African American community. Xavier Pope is with us. Let's uh, stick on the uh, culture angle. John, you have the story, and I saw this picture. I didn't realize it had blown up into a really oh, big yeah. deal. Explain the, what is it, Kristen Bell picture? So, yeah, so Kristen Bell posts on Instagram. It's like a slideshow of a recent vacation. And one of the pictures that comes to the forefront is it's a picture of dinner uh, with a lot of very famous people, but also a lot, and actually every single one of them, I think for two, uh, a lot of white people. So, Xavier, I wanted to ask you because there was a lot of conversation about this on social media. There were people that were uh, throwing, if you remember her book, I think it's something like We Need More Purple People or something like that, right around 2020 and everything was happening with George Floyd and uh, building off of that. Is there something here in criticizing Kristen Bell for not having a diverse friend group? I mean, a lot of people don't have diverse friend groups. Uh, people, a lot of people have something to say about it. Yeah. Uh, but if you're, if you're making points about how societies change in terms of diversity, then you should start at home. Um, and so I think it's the hypocrisy of of her of her words, some of the empty platitudes that are placed after George Floyd was murdered, and some of the the, the reverse that's happened since. The people have now that studies have shown that people care less about um, diversity, care less about equity in society than they did before George Floyd was murdered. And this looks like people it was a and I said this at the time on Suit Up News. People treated it like it was a Macarena, something cool to do. Then once the <laughs> once 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 the shine wore off, people were off to do to do another dance. So let's close on this one. Um, you know, as someone who works on a station that is affiliated with ESPN, we're not owned by ESPN. We're owned by Lotus Broadcasting, but we're ESPN Las Vegas. So every once in a while, we'll get a, a shot here or there. But I, I I think there's a you know a real big thing the last whatever five ten years on social media about ESPN's woke. That's why it's dying. It's woke. Well, Disney may look to, you know, after getting rid of a lot of talent and people behind the scenes, may look to sell a piece of ESPN. Do you think the people who are worried about the wokeness of ESPN will root for the Saudis to buy in? I mean, maybe that would satisfy their needs? Uh, I don't know how, I don't even know how you can connect anti wokeness in the Saudis. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's the strangest thing in the world. Uh, but. But we do see the how uh, Saudi investment funds are coming into a professional sport. Why wouldn't it go into professional sports broadcasting? Uh, uh, I, I tweeted this out. I said, hey, this is Saudi investment fund on line one after some of the news came out about uh, ESPN potentially selling equity stake. I mean, it, I could see it from a mile away. Um, you may have heard it here first. But if it happens, you heard it here. I've said it. Um, and that doesn't seem like something that would go against woke 
culture. It just seems something about what's happening is that our, the sport is up for sale to the highest bidder. It doesn't matter if you chop someone's head off. It doesn't matter um, how dirty the money or anything you've said about how more, the morality of uh, in and around some of the politics of it all. Xavier, we appreciate the spot, man. Have a great weekend, and we'll check in with you uh, sooner than later. Love you guys. Love you, too. Go Vegas. Give it to Give it. Give it. Love you, too. There you go. I didn't feel like it was genuine today. His always sounds real I'm old. I know. Uh, 364-1100, caller 7. Let's qualify another person for the Lotus Summer, a fun, great giveaway. You qualify for a chance to win four tickets to an Aviators game, and then our weekly grand prize trip. We're giving away eight trips in eight weeks this week. It's a five-day houseboat rental on Lake Powell, plus a $1,000 gift card for gas and food, or you can take the cash, 3000 bucks. Take the trip, take the cash. It's a Lotus Summer, a fun call in right now. Demond's got you in at caller 7, 364-1100.